Hello and welcome to episode five of Public Health Disrupted, the brand new podcast from UCL Health of the Public. I'm Zahn Van Tulliken. I'm a doctor, I'm a writer and a TV presenter and public health is everything to me. It tells us so much about human progress, about our values and our beliefs. It's one of the central functions of our government and I'm prepared to do pretty much anything to start a conversation about public health, and I do mean anything. I've edited journals, I've written books about humanitarian healthcare, I've humiliated myself on children's television and on grown-up television on multiple occasions. And I'm Rochelle Burgess. I'm a community health psychologist specializing in community-based and community-led approaches to health around the world. I'm a lecturer at the UCL's Institute for Global Health and a self-confessed hippie. And I'm here pretty much to make sure that we never forget the importance of community, solidarity and social change and its role in public health and making sure that Zan doesn't forget it and that nobody else forgets it. And part of that involves giving out hugs. So I suppose I'm the resident community hugger. I'm here for the hugs and the solidarity. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is about public health, but more importantly, it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. Join us monthly as we challenge the status quo and ask what needs to change and why. Each month we'll be joined by activists, scholars, artists, comedians, industry professionals, and anyone else we can think of. We want as many people from UCL and outside of UCL to join in our public health conversation. We're calling this podcast Public Health Disrupted because that's exactly what we want to do. We want to shake things up. We want to break down disciplinary, sectoral and geographic boundaries. We want to understand the diverse and complex issues impacting our health. So in today's episode, we're going to be exploring how arts and creativity can help to tackle health inequalities. And I have to say, this is a massive topic. If we think of how broad the idea of arts and creativity is, music, poetry, dance, theatre, painting, sculpture, endless amounts of things that can be put into the world and what that would mean to an individual who's never done it before compared to a professional artist compared to an academic who's looking at an art-based intervention as part of a randomized controlled trial. So I think our guests are unbelievably well placed to steer us through their experiences and, and what they think. What do you think, Rochelle? All that's running in my head right now is Last night a DJ saved my life (laughs) and I will not sing anymore uh, ever again on any episode, but I will tell you that I... You hit the high notes. That was good. (laughs) Well, art has saved me on more occasions than I can count. Another one of my secrets is that I sing. So there I just outed myself yet again. But singing and poetry and the lot, you know, I think... If in another life, I would have been an artist and I keep coming back to it because I think it's so important for finding and living parts of yourselves that get beaten down by the world around us. And and so the idea that we can and should be channeling those different mechanisms of the self to improve health for everyone is one that I am here for and just so excited to be in such great company to discuss this. So I'll just jump in to introduce our first guest, who is Dr. Harold Ofe, who is an artist who works with a wide range of media, including performance, video, photography, one of my faves, which he uses in combination with learning and social arts practice. Harold's work explores history and how it informs contemporary culture, often employing humor to confront the way we tell and relive the stories of our past. He is exhibited widely in the UK and beyond, including the Tate Britain here in London, the Studio Museum in Harlem in New York, and the Consul Charlottenburg 
in Denmark. And my apologies to any Danish listeners for what just transpired. I, I All beg of your Scandinavia. All of Scandinavia. Apologies. <laughs> Our second guest is Professor Helen Chatterjee, Professor of Biology in UCL Biosciences and UCL Arts and Sciences. Helen's research includes evidencing the impact of natural and cultural participation on health, and she's an advisor to the all-party parliamentary group on arts and health. Her interdisciplinary research has won a range of awards, including a special commendation from Public Health England for Sustainable Development and the 2018 AHRC Welcome Health Humanities Medal and Leadership Award. And she received an MBE in 2015 for services to higher education and culture. It is a massive treat to have both of you with us. Yes, thanks so, so much. I'll start off. My first question is for you, actually, Helen. What do art and creativity have to do with public health? Well, we've been researching this question for the past 10 years, and we've worked with a range of different museums of all shapes and sizes, artists, arts and cultural organisations and different sorts of community connectors to understand how their work benefits the health of the public. And we've collected a range of um, biopsychosocial data, so biological data, psychological well-being data, behavioural data from a whole range of different audiences that those organisations are working with. We've mostly focused on working with vulnerable and marginalised groups who are not typical or regular users of arts and culture. That might be, for example, refugees or asylum seekers, other people who are perhaps excluded from accessing, for example, museums, older people with dementia, stroke survivors, mental health service users, as well as their caregivers and healthcare professionals who support them. And our research has shown that arts and creative engagement elicits a range of different health as well as social and behavioural outcomes. We see increases in positive social experiences leading to reduced social isolation, increased opportunities for learning and acquiring new skills. And we we know that that's important for good cognitive health. We see increased positive emotions, optimism, hope, enjoyment, and a sense of belonging, increased self-esteem, a confidence, self-identity, and sense of identity, increased inspiration and opportunities for meaning making, and overall healthier lifestyle changes. For example, increased visits to museums and green spaces once you've been encouraged to come. Helen, I think you've done an extraordinary job of sewing together a method of prizing apart this and looking at how how certain interventions and certain organisations might benefit people when you have such a range of possibilities to look at. If we move from the academic perspective to Harold, I know you are a doctor, but you're also a practising artist. How do you see arts and creativity tackling health inequalities who gets access to these kind of public health programs? It's obviously a very huge question, and I think it's important to sort of think about the many different aspects of arts and creativity and how they intersect and impact on public health. But I think for me, a crucial thing is participation and really thinking about not only the opportunity to engage with the arts and creativity broadly, but the qualitative experience of that. Through my experience as an artist, I mean, I work quite a lot in social contexts where I'm working with people who don't often think about themselves as kind of creative beings or creative individuals. I think in that context, I really begin to see some of the problems that I think we have within the culture, which is this kind of siloing. There's a kind of separation between people's experience, everyday experience, and what they view as art culture, uh, in inverted commas, 
and creativity. And often people see those things as being very much outside of their everyday experience. And I think for me, that is the problem, is that sense in which already there's a sense of things being outside of everyday experience. And I think for me, something that I'm really invested in is that sense in which there isn't that separation, is that, you know, as as humans, we explore and use all the tools that are available to us, including creativity. And I think when you begin to have more of a kind of holistic perspective, I think it begins to kind of counteract some of the damage that comes from people's lack of access to certain areas of art and creativity. It's, for me, what's very problematic in the UK is how arts and culture is very class-based, which creates these hierarchies that I think that mean that, again, often exclude people or, or people feel they don't necessarily have access to things. I think, Harold, you've really hit the nail on the on the head there with this idea that people don't see themselves as being allowed to or as it, what they do as counting as art or being, being able to see yourself in those spaces. And it made me think of, so in the beginning, I said that I was a singer. The thing is that I'm classically trained. I was wanted to be an opera singer. Tell me how many Black opera singers you've ever like seen. And I just sort of was like, oh, that's not for me. So I will do what my mom says and I will become a doctor instead. So there is something about in trying to think about engaging vulnerable communities, how we think about how arts and culture are portrayed as being part of everyday life or something that's a part of the performance of an ideal. And I guess I just would love to hear some of your ideas or thinking about how we work to bring as many people into the fold in terms of thinking about how they access arts and culture and to show that it is for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a crucial point. Maybe this is a slightly tricky way of viewing it, but I think, again, it's this thing about partly compartmentalising things, you know, in the way that that school curriculum separates double science from art, from music, history. And again, I'm I'm sort of a real believer in this kind of like holistic approach and also seeing the kind of cross currents of creativity and art in science, the scientific thinking that can be applied to creativity as well. And, and also, I think it's interesting, I think in other cultures, there isn't this separation between like art, what we, what we view as art. And often I think art is the problem whenever I'm doing collaborative community projects or working with people who don't consider themselves artists. I feel like I have to dismantle this whole structure and hierarchy of art. We, we put art in institutions which is an important part of kind of preserving and recognising the value of that. But it also, in a way, that pedestal, I think, disenfranchises people. I mean, I'm of Ghanaian heritage and, you know, I really love that idea that you get in Ghana that there's sort of people are, are living the museum. Like, it's what they're wearing. It's the kente cloth that has a history that, that is, you know, it's the dinkra symbols, it's the instruments, you know, this kind of sonic culture, talking drums. There's There's a kind of integration of art and culture into the everyday that it makes it weird for people to think about going to a museum I don't need to go to a museum I just need to talk to my grandmother or like go out into the streets so I think that for me is a kind of central thing 
people like Howell, the organisations that he works with, you know, for example, hospital rooms and many of the organisations we've been working with over the last decade or so, they've got such a wealth of experience of understanding communities, what their needs are, how they're more marginalised, what their vulnerabilities are. In many ways, I think much better than healthcare professionals and or people researching that. So people in my situation and in a way they understand that they have already this inherently person-centred more holistic, nuanced way of understanding what we would call complex needs. And therefore, in a way, they've got that practical experience of understanding those wider social determinants of health. For example, you you might have an individual who's got very specific health issues. So they might have depression or diabetes or dementia or obesity, or maybe all of the above. But often what we see is individuals who are experiencing the worst inequalities and who are often excluded most from society. They, for example, also got issues, say, with debt. They might be unemployed. They might have issues, you know, with having been in prison. They might have housing problems that may have led to drug or alcohol misuse. They're living in very deprived areas. So again, that idea of collaboration between people like Harold and those organisations, community connectors, you might call them, community organisations that have that really deep understanding, linking that up with health, social care and social services, I think is the best way to tackle issues around vulnerabilities and targeting people. But that's really got to, I think, be at the heart of, of, I totally agree with Harold's systems change. And there are opportunities, I think, around that. We're seeing these new integrated care systems being rolled out in England, which is specifically about partnership. But I think that only works if you place people with complex needs together with those community individuals and professionals who really understand their needs alongside the services that are already being offered. Because many of those individuals are not actually, as Rochelle I'm sure knows, they're not accessing those services. Or if they do, they access them much later than other individuals. So the situation is is exacerbated. That's really it, right? Like, I love that what you've said there about communities knowing better themselves where the needs are, where the tensions are, what the complexities are, and also what routes there might be to solving that. It's something that seems to have run across a lot of our other episodes is the importance of listening to and anchoring to people's stories and and voices and actually enabling support services to follow them and follow their journeys as a way of improving well-being. What do you both think about the idea the role that arts and culture might play in this post-pandemic recovery, or not in, not post-pandemic, but the recovery and our ability to cope with and process the pandemic as it continues around the world, and potentially as things alter a little bit for the better in the UK, the idea of a sort of build back better agenda, what, what's the role of arts and culture in that? I think the arts and culture have a huge role to play. I mean, I think one's got to acknowledge the devastation that arts and culture infrastructure has had under the pandemic. One of the things that we need to do is definitely sort of build up that infrastructure. But I think in this moment of sort of hopefully coming out of the pandemic and seeing a post-pandemic future, I think there's an opportunity to really start to think about how we might shape the arts and culture infrastructure in slightly different ways. That ways that I think are definitely more responsive to communities that I think is more integrated and joined up with other sectors, particularly public health, but I think also other areas of the public life. Because I think all too much we see our arts infrastructure, and I'm focusing on arts infrastructure, and there are other areas, obviously, but maybe they're the most visible things if we think about galleries and museums. But also I think about youth and community art services that are really the kind of sort of bedrock 
of the arts ecology. It's often where young people encounter different arts at a grassroots level. I think it's really important that we begin to really think about the relationship in this ecology between these different institutions and think about really embedding them. I mean, I've been as an artist involved with many organisations. Helen mentioned hospital rooms, which commissions artists to work on psychiatric wards. But also most galleries have schools and community kind of initiatives. And this is where I got involved and learned about social practice and working with people in in different contexts. But I always feel it's a little bit kind of piecemeal, you know, with the funding and how the funding is kind of allocated. But also I think in the reach and scope and depth of relationships between institutions. I have a utopian vision about the arts being totally integrated into every aspect of life. So seeing artists, dancers, musicians in hospitals, in clinics, in schools, integrated into kind of social services, not instrumentalised, which often happens. And I just want to say that because I think there's often a danger of like, oh, get an artist in and they'll do a mural and that'll sort sort everything out. I think it's about recognising the knowledges and practices that artists across the arts have, but also recognising the cultural knowledge that communities have and bringing those together. Helen, I can see you're nodding along with that. The instrumentalization that Harold mentioned to me is so fascinating because there is a danger with a lot of things that are joyful and incredibly meaningful, but the medical community will take them and go, all right, well, can we turn it into a pill somehow? Can we like prescribe a packet of watercolours? And then you have to show your watercolours to your GP or your insurance company in order to get your sort of mad things like this. And so you're at the sort of interface of maybe that tension where in demonstrating the value, you're potentially then giving them metrics to recommend things. But Helen, how do do you resolve that tension? And and how do you see see the arts and culture getting us post-pandemic, that sort of recovery process? I think it's really important that Harold's hit the nail on the head really is that closer collaboration. But what we've seen specifically from arts and culture, which I think we can all learn a lot from, is that they can be really, really agile and dynamic. They can respond very, very quickly when they've got a really deep understanding of those communities' needs. We've seen these new and unexpected collaborations. So museums, libraries, artists working with food banks or local authority risk registers. So these new ways of working. But what we want to do is move away, like Carol says, from this instrumental where you're just doing something one-off to try and create a specific outcome for a short period of time into something that's intrinsic to to all of those individuals' lives within their community, that they're going to be regular users of that museum or the library. That creates big shifts in the way that those organisations are funded, the way that they're managed. And I think if we really want to, I guess, harness the sort of collective power of arts, I would include in that nature and other sorts of community assets, we've got to build these sort of creative health partnerships and operationalize them in that sort of systems way and that create requires big change you know at policy level at funding level at management level and and strategic levels requires cross-government working cross-funding working and I think there are opportunities to do that but really it's only going to work if again communities and particularly the most vulnerable members of society are put at the heart of that. It feels like there's this critical moment that we're at right now where we could We could do all of those things. We could completely sort of restructure the way things are financed and structured and and where things are embedded. There was this brief window of time in the pandemic when I felt a lot of hope for the way in which community assets and community power was being 
recognized in these other echelons of of power. But if I put on my devil's advocate hat, I don't know how well that's panned out. And what makes me think about that is particularly how the arts and theater sectors have been completely left behind in terms of thinking about support during the pandemic. I have lots of friends and colleagues who were parts of mobilizations to get funding given to, to the arts, which came much later after everything else. It was almost this this afterthought. And the mobilization you're talking about, Helen, really is organizations who do this out of deep love for the communities that they're embedded in, not because they have the funding laying around. And it could go in either direction. I just wondered if you would both reflect on what would a post-COVID world look like if we didn't do those things. So what would a a post-COVID world look like without art if we don't get our act together and support these mechanisms and support these changes that we know and have the evidence for that are so important to health and well-being? I would say bleak and depressing are the two words I would use. I mean, actually, you're, you're right, Michelle. I mean, the research has shown that there's been this big uplift in awareness of community assets and people using arts and, and culture to support them during the pandemic. And, and we need to keep that momentum up and continue to provide opportunities, um, particularly, I think, for excluded audiences. And again, it comes down to those systemic shifts in the way that they are funded and the way that they're run. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm from that sector to do that. I mean, yes, we've got our Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance annual conference running at the minute, and there are hundreds of people at that, all committed exactly to that. So I, I think, you know, the time is now for radical change. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would be awful, a sort of post-pandemic world without art, Although in some ways, I mean, I often think about sort of art because it's just a part of humanity, like it's always there. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about, again, the kind of infrastructure and how people's access to the arts is facilitated. I mean, I'm always really concerned with education and, you know, often as a kind of sort of um, incubator for young people really thinking about their relationship to the world. And I think at the moment, what really worries me is this inequality and imbalance across the country. So you see in places, because I often do quite a lot of work with schools, you see some schools that have really amazing provision. They'll have galleries. I'm talking about the state sector here. I won't talk about the division between private schools and state schools. But but in other areas, it's a complete desert. They might do either music, theatre or art once every two weeks for half an hour. And I think for me, that is a real problem infrastructurally moving forward, is that we're building generationally this inequality and disenfranchising a huge sector of the population moving forward. And I think that's something I'm really thinking about as an arts professional that has to be counteracted. Harold, I guess, as, as someone who's creating art, how much do you think that you are beyond beyond entertainment, beyond diversion, beyond engagement, beyond an intellectual process, you are putting something into the world that is disruptive? I don't necessarily set out to make a kind of radical piece of art because I think, you know, that, that notion of radicality is so contingent on context. Something that I consider could be potentially very conservative could be radical in, in a particular context. But for me, I think it's more about curiosity and questioning and finding ways of kind of communicating effectively. I think in order to bring to light what for me are social concerns, I mean, I'm someone that's invested in social justice and access and education. So those questions are very kind of live to me and 
I often think about how I might create and facilitate spaces for those things to be, well, for conversations around those things, for shared making, for shared learning, for collaborative co-working models. I don't know whether that's necessarily radical or not. I don't always think you necessarily need things to be labelled as kind of radical. Maybe they just need to be efficient or maybe they need to be streamlined. Sometimes the manifestation can be very slight or very simple. Often I think in reaching for the kind of radical, it can get lost in the kind of hyperbole or rhetoric of the big gesture that maybe doesn't have as much impact. I mean, I think when I think about radical, I mean, maybe this is a bit sucky up to say because Alan's here, but I think, you know, the work that she's doing and her colleagues are doing, I think is actually quite radical in terms of that investment, long-term investment and co-partnerships, the data that's being kind of collected. Maybe it's not the kind of very, like, splashy, sexy stuff that you might see, like, a big theatre production with like nudity or like splashing like political headlines doing, but it's that important conduit that making those kind of connections that <laughs> is kind of sort of needed, you know. I love that. Although I believe for the next departmental meeting, it is planned to be in the nude, isn't it, Helen? Is that? I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely doing that. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, pre- I'm preparing already. But I did, well, thank you to Harold for the lovely words. But I did want to just flag up, I think, the fact that you mentioned education. And, and I think I absolutely agree in integrating these more radical approaches and co-production and collaboration. And that's something we're trying to do in our new master's programme at UCL in creative health, which I'm really hoping Harold and his colleagues are going to get involved in helping to teach. And it's really about a new way of of teaching and learning through community engagement and through partnership. So it's really about training a new generation of scholars and practitioners, I guess, to meet this hopefully changing health, social care and voluntary third sector, where this notion of personalised care and person-centred care and health equity and the patient experience are mainstreamed into public health. And we've got loads of brilliant artists, arts organisations, community organisations collaborating with us to deliver it. So it's going to be really exciting. I'm so excited about that programme. You will see me hanging out there, even though I probably shouldn't (laughs) be. Uh, Yeah, it was, I saw that and I was like, that, that is what dreams are made of. Really, really excited. So, I mean, just as we're wrapping up now, it'd be really great to to ask one more question. Something that we've been doing on, on the podcast so far this series is that we've been asking our guests to think about an artifact, sort of a piece of art or music or something in their life that has disrupted their thinking and shifted the way that you think about it and engage with the world. And I just wondered if you would be able to share something um, maybe it's a slight cop out but I'm gonna choose something that I've been using as part of a project that I've been working on so maybe I'll cite this book if that's okay is that allowed yeah. as an yeah. so there's a book that I've been reading by Barbara Ironreich called Dancing in the Streets a history of collective joy which is uh, it's a really great work it's a kind of survey of that sort of maps social joy through whether there are these moments of ritualistic practice are going back into kind of classical culture, bacchanalian reveries, practices of ancient Rome and Greece, but also thinking about how our relationship to collective joy has been inscribed through colonialism and those encounters of religion with indigenous cultures and how that's then kind of echoed into our present. But also then thinking about the relationship between dance and protest, collectivity in in public places, which is 
at the moment quite heavily policed. So yeah, I mean, I would cite that. I mean, this has been linked into some research that I've been doing, but yeah, really enlightening. And also because I've been thinking a lot about the communal and collective spaces, just because those things are other things that I don't have access to at the moment. Oh, amazing That's fantastic. I've written that down. <laughs> I've already ordered it. <laughs> Helen. It's so hard to choose one. Rochelle, you mentioned last night a DJ saved my life. Uh, Frankie Knuckles saved my life on many occasions, RIP. But I think you know, I would have to draw from nature just because I love hiking and just being out and out and about in nature. And the Black Mountains, I spend a lot of time there simply because it's easy to get to from London. Um, I also figure skate. And that, I think, is, uh, yeah, that's where I uh, really helped me with my research, actually, talking about the flow state and being immersed emotionally, physically, cognitively in activities, just trying to land a jump without, you know, severely injuring yourself whilst also enjoying yourself and making it look very good. That, that is, is fantastic. amazing. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've ever met a figure skater before, even though I grew up in Canada. So now I'm definitely going to come and hang out near your office at UCL. Just, uh... <laughs> I've, been, I've been lobbying for years for UCL to get, you know, some dry ice. Uh, yeah, dry ice an ice system. ring. <laughs> I, oh, I can't do jumps. In the quad. I can teach you. Mine are only very small. I'm not very good, but I've been doing it for about 20 years. That's amazing. Wow. What a treat having you both on. That's so, that's so lovely. You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zand Van Teleken, produced by UCL Health of the Public and edited by Karis Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Helen Chatterjee and Dr. Harold Ofe. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Health of the Public, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash health dash of dash public forward slash. You can just type in health the public to the search engine of your choice. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together genuinely, I think, UCL knowledge, insights, expertise through events, digital content and activities that we really want to be open to everyone.